Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, March 13th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Actually, I'm not going to go over the top story first. The biggest piece of news from the weekend that we had up all the weekend, so we moved it down a little bit, is the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to normalize ties. Now, this is a big deal, and it's an even bigger deal because this deal was brokered by China. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone. The, this announcement was first made on Friday by Iranian and Saudi state media said after several days of talks in Beijing, Iranian and Saudi officials agreed to resume relations between the two countries. And under this deal, they plan on resuming full diplomatic relations and reopening their embassies and missions within a period not exceeding two months. So they have two months to get their embassies back open. And they also agreed that the ministers of foreign affairs of both countries shall meet to implement this, arrange for the return of their ambassadors, and discuss means of enhancing bilateral relations. The deal also includes a commitment by Iran, Saudi Arabia, and China to make every effort to strengthen regional and international peace and security. So the agreement calls for Tehran and Riyadh to respect each other's uh, sovereignty. Additionally, Saudi Arabia and Iran will agree to, they agreed to implement accords that were signed in 1998 and 2001. The talks between Tehran and Riyadh occurred in Beijing this week, and the deal was inked during a ceremony on Friday. China's most senior foreign policy official, Wang Yi, he celebrated the the signing as a victory. Um, So, Iran and Saudi Arabia, they cut, they severed diplomatic relations, formal diplomatic relations in 2016 after Saudi Arabia carried out the execution of a prominent Shia cleric. This resulted in protesters storming the Saudi embassy in Iran, provoking the end of ties between the two nations. And, you know, tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia have been high for a while, uh, and and they're both involved in some conflicts in the Middle East. In Syria and Iraq, Saudi Arabia backed extremist forces and Iran backed the armies of Damascus and Baghdad. Iran backed, obviously, Syria and also, you know, the Shia militias of Iraq. In Yemen, Riyadh has fought a war against the Houthis for nearly a decade. So the Houthis, you know, they are a political ally of Iran, but they're not like a proxy force, you know, the same way Hezbollah is. Uh, They're not as close to Iran as, say, Hezbollah is. And the Houthis, um, again, political ties to Iran, but they really are their own, you know, homegrown movement. It's not like they're just a proxy of Iran that's kind of misrepresented in in media. And you could tell just because of the negotiations right now to end the war, Iran's not involved. It's Saudi Arabia, the the Saudi-backed government, and the Houthis. And I think the U.S. and U.N. are on the periphery, but, you know. Uh, But anyway, so this could, I think, really reduce tensions in the region. I think this is great news, especially when it comes to, you know, the U.S. And the U.S. and Israel, they have these big plans to make this anti-Iran alliance in the region. They want Israel to normalize with Saudi Arabia to, uh, you know, advance that plan. But I think this makes that less likely. I think, you know, another U.S. ally in the region uh, 
uh, opening up with Iran and, you know, seeking to reduce tensions is going to give the U.S. more of a reason to back off Iran on sanctions and not give Israel whatever they want. Uh, but we'll see how it plays out. And, you know, the U.S. was very against Saudi Arabia and Iran improving relations. And it was actually when they killed Soleimani, the Iranian general who was killed in a drone strike in Baghdad in 2020, he was actually there um, to receive a message. That was when Iraq was brokering talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And Soleimani was there. He was going to meet with Iraq's prime minister and he was going to receive a message from the Saudis. Or maybe he already received it at that point. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, you know, the U.S. has worked you know, against this. And as the U.S. has kind of backed off a little bit from the region, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia started talking again. So, uh, again, it's good news. Uh, and who knows what this means for, you know, Saudi Arabia and China. If, if the Saudis are serious about really increasing their relationship with China, maybe eventually down the road they're going to sell oil, uh, trade oil with the yuan, the, the Chinese currency, which, you know, our whole, the whole U.S. currency uh, the reason why it's the world reserves currency is because the Saudis, it's the petrodollar, you know, it's what the Saudis use to trade their oil. So if that changes, you know, it can have a huge impact, you know, on, on the U S and the world. Um, so it's definitely, you know, a relationship to keep an eye on. And then the Israelis of course are not happy about it. So the next one here, Israeli officials says the Saudi Iran deal is a result of U S weakness. So a senior Israeli official told reporters on Friday that the normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran was the result of the weakness of the U.S. and previous Israeli government. So this official said while traveling with Netanyahu in Rome, this official said, quote, there was a feeling of U.S. and Israeli weakness, and this is why the Saudis started looking for new avenues. It was clear that this was going to happen, end quote. So the official said that this deal, which was brokered by China, should not impact Israel's efforts to normalize with Riyadh. They say that those plans should, should keep going. But again, a major aspect of these plans to open up with these Arab states is to form this anti-Iran alliance in the region. And that seems you know, much more likely, unlikely now due to the Saudi-Iran rapprochement. So former Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, he, he now leads the opposition in the Knesset uh, since, he, since Netanyahu took over. He slammed the Netanyahu government for this deal, and he said that the Saudi-Iran deal signals, quote, the collapse of the regional defense wall that we started building against Iran. This is what happens when one deals with legal insanity all day instead of doing one's job against Iran and strengthening relations with the United States, end quote. Um, so again, you know, these, the Israelis aren't happy. I haven't seen Netanyahu himself, you know, put, you know, a statement out there about this, but we'll see, you know, how they react. And what was interesting is, you know, the last episode I recorded, I actually went over, this was the day before the Saudis and the Iranians signed this deal. The wall street journal reported, and then it was reported in a few other outlets that Saudi Arabia you know, there, there are talks going on between the Saudis and, and Israel for normalization. I don't know if it's directly between them or if the U.S. is facilitating it. But uh, Saudi Arabia is seeking some pretty big demands from the U.S. to uh, get that normalization. They want the U.S. to provide security guarantees. They want more access to U.S. weapons. 
and they want the U.S. to help them, you know, build a nuclear program. So these are pretty big asks. And now, um, you know, the one downside, you know, that I think this deal might have not so much downside, but, you know, the, the one bad thing that might come out of it again is that Congress is going to be really mad about this. People in Washington are going to be more ready to give the Saudis whatever they want because the Saudis do have a lot of leverage over the U.S. when it comes to this relationship with China and and now this relationship with Iran. And I think that's the way the Biden administration, if they're serious about getting this normalization deal signed, they're going to sell it to Congress like that. You know, this is what we need to do, you know, to stop this uh, growing Iran, uh, Saudi, Saudi, China, you know, relationship. Um, so we'll see how this all plays out, but it's very interesting. And I think, you know, it's part of the reason why the U.S. is against Chinese influence uh, in the region, because it might do something like this and reduce tensions. Um, all right. So the next one here, the U.S. and Ukraine's unity is cracking apart. So over one year since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, Politico reported that there are growing differences between Washington and Kiev on how to move forward in the conflict. And so this is kind of just a summary of some of the stuff I've, I've covered before. Some of it's a little new claims being made here, but just a few of the things that the U.S. and Ukraine are at odds over. And one of those issues is Bakhmut, the eastern Ukrainian city where Russian and Ukrainian forces have been locked in battle for over eight months. Biden administration officials think that Ukraine has expended too many resources defending the city and worry it will impact their ability to launch a counteroffensive this spring, which the U.S. is pushing for. But officials in Kiev have decided to keep fighting for the city, and the battle is still going on. Another point of contention is over Crimea, as Zelensky and his you know, top officials, they keep insisting they're going to retake this peninsula. And Crimea has been under Russian control since 2014. And it's also populated by people who don't want to be part of Ukraine, who want mostly uh, are happy that they joined Russia. Now, while some there are some Biden administration officials who have vowed support for Ukrainian attacks on Crimea, including Victoria Nuland, and the U.S. doesn't have restrictions on their weapons, you know that you know technically Ukraine can use American weapons if, if they're in range to attack Crimea. But this political report said that other U.S. officials believe Zelensky's insistence that there will be no peace talks until the peninsula is taken will only prolong the war. Uh, but still, publicly, Biden and other U.S. officials maintain that negotiations will only happen under Kiev's terms. Uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, he recently acknowledged that you know the risk of escalation if if the U.S. backs a Ukrainian attempt on Crimea calling it a red line for Putin. And the Pentagon has said it's unlikely that Ukraine can take the peninsula. So there's a lot of signs, again, that the U.S. is not on board with this goal. And the U.S. also appears to be tired of Zelensky's constant demands for weapons. Two White House officials told Politico that there are grumblings in Washington over Zelensky's constant requests and lack of gratitude. Despite the massive amount of support provided by the U.S. and its allies, Ukrainian officials have frequently said that it's not enough, and they're now demanding fighter jets and longer-range missiles. So the political report mentioned the Nord Stream sabotage and how U.S. officials are now linking the attack to Ukraine while insisting that the Ukrainian government was not involved. It's kind of strange, these claims that they're making. 
It does look like, though, they're trying to pin it on, on Ukraine. Uh, but it also seems like these vague claims, you know, there's all these reports coordinated that came out at the same time, making these similar, again, very vague claims, not really based on on much. Um, you know, the, the, the gist of it is, is that they were Ukrainians or they don't even say that they're Ukrainians. It, it was people uh, with links to Ukraine using a Ukrainian yacht, a Ukrainian owned yacht to carry this out, even though at the time when it first happened, everybody... The one, the one consensus of all the investigators was that it was probably a state actor because of the amount of explosives and, you know, the sophisticated diving that would be needed to, to carry it out. But anyway, it seems like all these claims are an effort to shift the blame from the U.S. following this, this report from Seymour Hersh that alleged President Biden ordered the bombing of the pipelines. So publicly, Biden, you know, is still maintaining that he's going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But there are, you know, a lot of these signs that the U.S. is thinking about winding down its support. And, you know, the, the U.S. has also told Ukraine that after this one aid package that they're spending, you know, they might not be able to get more, you know, at this amount. Uh, so really what's what's the, the situation is now is over these next few months, you know, there could be a huge escalation. Uh, but after that, the U.S., I think, might just force the Ukrainians to negotiate. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, you know, that that might not be the case. They might just keep keep going along with this. But they're, they're, they definitely are starting to uh, fracture the U.S. and Ukrainian officials. All right. The next one here, Russia's Wagner chief says that fighting in Bakhmut is getting fiercer. So this is Yegevny Prigozhin. He is the head of the Wagner Group, which is the Russian mercenary outfit. And he said on Sunday that the fighting in Bakhmut is getting you know, more intense as Ukraine keeps pouring troops in to defend the area. So he said, quote, the situation in Bakhmut is difficult, very difficult with the enemy fighting for each meter. And the closer we are approaching the city center, the fiercer the fighting is growing, the more artillery and tank being used against us, end quote. So Prigozhin said that Ukraine is supplying endless reserves, but he insisted that the Wagner fighters would keep moving forward. Since mid-January, Wagner and the regular Russian forces that have been making gains, that have been fighting around the city, have been making gains. Uh, they recently took the eastern district of the small city, which has a pre-war population of 70,000. So also on Sunday, Zelensky claimed that Russia had suffered 1,100 dead troops in just a week of fighting for Bakhmut, but the number is not verified. But Ukraine is, you know, claiming that Russia is also taking, you know, pretty major casualties. And this is a way for Zelensky uh, to justify, you know, staying in the city and keep throwing troops into what they call, you know, this meat grinder. And we know that from the, the account of Ukrainian soldiers that were fighting there, you know, they're being sent in with little training, little support, little weapons, you know, few, uh, not much ammunition. And they're being thrown into this meat grinder and, uh, you know, it just continues. And it sounds like it is, you know, rough for the Russian side as well. But again, it's just so hard to know um, the real casualty numbers. But I think it's pretty clear that a lot of people are dying in this battle uh, for the city that's been going on for so long. Uh, all right. The next one here, a U.S. airstrike in Somalia, according to Several reports killed seven civilians, and this was back in January. So this is according to the monitoring group Air Wars. 
They say that a suspected U.S. drone strike killed seven civilians, including three children, in Somalia on January 30th. So, Air Wars, you know, I always see their reports. They put out reports every once in a while on U.S. Air Wars in certain countries. And I was just scrolling around their site looking at reported uh, Somalia airstrikes. And I noticed, you know, I always go over AFRICOM. I use the the press releases put out by the military because I, I, I usually have a tough time finding anything else about Somalia airstrikes. Uh, but they have a lot of uh, alleged airstrikes that the military has not claimed. Uh, so it looks like the U.S. is bombing Somalia a lot more than even, you know, I know about. Um, but anyway, so this they cited media reports for this one airstrike. This was the one that I noticed a lot of they said a lot of civilians were killed. They cited three, uh, you know, Somali media outlets online. Uh, local residents said that the strike took place between two villages near the border of the Haran region in the middle Shabel region, and that's about southern uh, Somalia, right here. If you're watching the video, so U.S. Africa Africa Command did not report an airstrike on January 30th, the day that this was said to be launched. Um, but it's not clear if AFRICOM has been claiming, you know, reporting every strike they launch. And it's also possible that the CIA, it's likely, uh, they've always conducted drone strikes in Somalia. So, you know, this could have been a CIA drone strike. According to Air Wars, the U.S. military has declared seven actions in Somalia so far this year. So that's AFRICOM saying, hey, we did this. Um, and they said seven actions. So I think that includes, from my count, it's six airstrikes and then the one raid against isis some isis leader but the monitoring group they recorded nine more alleged u.s airstrikes now not all verified um but when it comes to this january 30th strike that they said killed civilians they gave it they give these these reports a different grading and they gave this one a fair grading and that's their highest grading meaning it's it's the most verified level uh below if the belligerent uh confirmed it below if the u.s said yeah we did this um so they're and and they're very good at this you know um they've gotten the pentagon to admit to higher casualty numbers in their air war in syria and iraq uh air wars has so you know the the they might have to address this one at some point um and one of the media outlets you know provided the names and the the ages of the civilians who were killed uh, one report said that three the three children were kidnapped by Al Shabaab and the, the suspected target. You know, the U.S. meant to target Al Shabaab, but they killed these seven civilians. And I won't read the names, but just give you the ages. I mean, these are all very young people. Uh, you know, one was 20 years old, 18 years old, eight years old, 18 years old, uh, one age unknown, 13 years old, and 14 years old. So really horrific. And you know, even the you know adults are. 18 and 20 um and three of those killed were brothers so and of course africom you know in, in the strikes that they report they claim no civilian casualties but the pentagon is notorious for undercounting civilian casualties especially in somalia and here we have this incident and, you know we're not hearing anything about the cia drone strikes you know we're never going to really find out uh the full story here but hopefully um because air wars is on top of this um, you know, that the U.S. might have to uh, cop to this at some point. All right. So the next one here, another Israeli airstrike in Syria, three wounded. 
So Israel launched more airstrikes in Syria on Sunday morning, wounding at least three Syrian soldiers. According to the Syrian news agency Sana'a, missiles were launched at, at targets in the western provinces of Tartus and Hama, two regions that were both uh, hit by this earthquake on, on February 6th. So again, more airstrikes in uh, regions of Syria where they were have been affected by the earthquake. Uh, said that they fired multiple missiles from the direction of North Lebanon, and um, the Syrian media report said that some of them were intercepted. They didn't specify what kind of targets they hit, but they said there was some material damage and three soldiers were wounded. And then, uh, so the the last uh, Syria airstrike, Israeli Syria airstrike before that was the one last week that hit the Aleppo airport and put it out of commission, uh, and then that stopped aid flights into the city because again that city really got hit hard by the earthquake uh, but on friday syrian officials they announced that the aleppo airport has been reopened so it was out of service for a few days uh, but it's back open and of course you know the un condemned you know the strike and the fact that it closed the aid uh, all right, the next one here republican leaders blast biden's military budget as inadequate so Republican leadership in Congress has blasted President Biden's massive $886 billion military budget request for 2024 as inadequate, even as House GOP members claim they want to cap spending. So House Republicans, you know, they're they're talking about this plan. I believe Kevin McCarthy agreed to something like this as part of his deal to secure his speakership to cap discretionary spending for the fiscal year 2024 at 2022 levels. But military spending accounts for about half of the discretionary spending each year. So if Republicans really want to do this, they have to roll back the Pentagon's budget, but few of them actually want to do that. So uh, one quote here is from Mike Rogers. He is the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Republican from Alabama. He said, quote, a budget that proposes to increase non-defense spending at more than twice the rate of defense is absurd. The president's incredibly misplaced priorities sent all the wrong messages to our adversaries, end quote. Senator Roger Wicker, he's a Republican uh, ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He called Biden's eight, again, it's $886 billion. It isn't a decent increase from last year but he calls it woefully inadequate. And then Representative Ken Calvert, he's the chair of the House Appropriation Committee's defense panel. He, again, said something similar, said that um, Biden is prioritizing domestic spending. So these comments are a sign that, like in previous years, Congress will likely add tens of billions of dollars to Biden's military spending request. For the 2023 fiscal year, Biden requested $813 billion, but Congress added $45 billion, bringing the finalized National Defense Authorization Act to $858 billion. For 2022 spending levels, Biden asked for $753 billion, but was handed nearly $778 billion. So I think we're going to see this pattern continue, you know, if these comments are, uh, are any sign. Uh, the last story in the news section today is... Uh, something else. This is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. The Pentagon will spend $750,000 inducing Havana syndrome in animals. 
And this is an illness that the intelligence community cannot prove exists. Um, so the Defense Department, they granted Wayne State University $750,000 in an attempt to give ferrets Havana syndrome. So they want to study this syndrome that, again, recently uh, the U.S. intelligence community concluded that it was not uh, caused by a weapon uh, of a foreign adversary. Um, so again, uh, Kyle here just kind of summarizes the, the whole situation here. Basically the first time this happened was in Havana, U S diplomats in Cuba. They claimed that they, they were hearing loud noises and experiencing headaches and, and, and feeling dizzy and all these strange symptoms. And they thought it was some sort of, you know, microwave weapon or something, but it turned out to be crickets, you know, the noise that they were hearing. That's according to a State Department report said it was crickets and scientists that analyzed it. And then there were other, uh, you know, places around the world where U.S. diplomats ex said they experienced similar things. And a lot of them are looking to get paid out of it. Some of them already, you know, had to stop working or, or stopped working because of it. And they're, and they're getting paid out. Uh, but it turns out it does seem like it's just a whole bunch of nonsense. But, you know, they're still studying this Havana syndrome spending seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to try to give it to ferrets all right uh that's it for the news go check out our viewpoints we have one from ted snyder who blew up the nord stream pipeline go check that out we have one from william j astore with the twitter files democrats support government censorship of lawful speech one from sheldon richmond here oh israel give me liberty or give me death one from Katrina Vanden Heuvel and James Carden uh, over at U.S.-Russia Accord. Why not diplomacy? You know, discussing the absence of diplomacy. And then one from George O'Neill over at the American Conservative, the death of a myth. And it's about, you know, how the U.S. is viewed on the world stage um, and the multipolarity that seems to be coming. Uh, but that's everything for me for today. Um, you can always support us, antiwar.com slash donate, like and subscribe to the show, share it around. Uh, but that's it. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.